Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to On the Birds. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. This is our first show of 2023. You, we hope that you, you have had a good holiday season or getting off to a good start in the new year. And now that we're back from our break, we've got a pretty busy show to get into tonight. We're going to talk about our breakout candidates for the 2023 season, who we think as far who could rise up the ranks as far as pitchers and hitters are concerned in the Orioles farm system. We'll also get into a couple of moves that have happened since our last episode, including the trade that brought James McCann to the Orioles to be Adley Rutzman's backup catcher next season. And we'll wrap it all up with a look back at the very first top 30 prospect list that we put together when this show started in early 2020. But first, we'll start with our break or with our Patreon shout out. Uh, we've got a few members of our Patreon community who have joined us here joined us over the final weeks of 2022 and the start of 2023. And for that, I will turn it over to Bob. Yeah, I guess our our plan to roll out our off-season review series into a uh, daily countdown of our top 50 prospects has really inspired some people, and we appreciate that. So if you're interested in seeing that as it progresses here in the last month or so of the off-season before pitchers and catchers report, please do so. You can find the link in the show notes below. But the new guys in town are David Schwartz, Ken Pearson, Ray Wilcher, and Stephen Hogan. Thank you guys so much. All go right to double A, so right on the cusp of the majors. Thank you for your support. And as a reminder, we are rolling out our top 50 prospect list player by player on Patreon over the next few weeks before the full player reports are published over at BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. And we'll, of course, have a breakdown on air now as – a transaction that came up today we're going to talk about a little bit later on. Um, things could be a little bit fluid uh, with our top 50 list between now and when pitchers and catchers report. But, of course, we'll address that as the time comes. We'll start now, though, as our breakout candidates for the 2023 season. And uh, over the holiday, we had kind of an informal Twitter poll of who our listeners thought were going to be the breakout candidates. We got a wide variety of names. And then we thought, you know what, we should – talk about this ourselves, and talk about who we think are breakout candidates uh, for this year. And the way it works is we each picked one player and one pitcher who we think are going to take a big step forward. Now, the criteria of breakout candidate, I should add, uh, can be a little bit of a gray area. Turns out um, nobody knows. Yeah, for some, it could be a player who doesn't get enough national recognition, i.e. not in top 100 lists that is going to start getting that this year. 
or it could be someone more in the mold of 2022 Frederick Ben Cosme or 2021 Gene Pinto, where they go from being overlooked by, you know, most Orioles fans and a lot of writers to being talked about as legitimate top 30 prospects. So kind of a wide range of definitions. And I think we've reflected the full scope of that. And I'll start with Nick because I think that his two candidates in particular are pretty interesting. Yeah, I'll go hitter first. I kind of talked about him on the last episode that we did our year in review show, but I'm, I'm going to bang this table as much as I can before the season starts and hope I'm right here. But my hitter is uh, Reed Trimble, and I went breakout in terms of just in the organization, who's going to be a guy who could really rise up our ranks. I think I made the – we did super bold predictions on that episode, and I said Reed Trimble would be a top 10 guy in the Orioles system by the end of next year. Obviously, that's a, that's super bold. I don't think it's going to happen, but I do think he has a really big season. Major so- shoulder surgery that he very likely could have miss- missed all of 2022 – there's no way I think he was feeling completely confident at the plate when he started playing with Delmarva, but he ended on a really positive note, looked really good when we got to watch him play. 353 on base percentage. I imagine a full kind of healthy offseason to go along with his AFL experience that he got will go a long way. And I just think that the Orioles drafted him 65th overall for more than one reason. So he hasn't been able to really play for two years. So like I'm all in on retremble in 2023. And my pitcher, I'm going with a guy who I know the org has pushed out the last couple of years, and it was good to still see them talk about this guy. But after really getting to watch him a lot last year, I really fell in love with Carlos Tavera. I think he was breaking out last year in a major way, but injuries just completely derailed his season, especially the second half of the year. There's no doubt in my mind he would have ended the year in Bowie, 33% strikeout rate, fastball in the upper 90s. I feel like the scouting reports coming out of the draft kind of raved about the changeup a lot, but I fell in love with the slider last season. I was watching some more video of his when you know, we were going to add this to the notes. I was watching some video of his again that we had from the season and just loved it so much. Um, if you pull up the final stat line of the season, you see the walk rate is kind of not pretty, and that was a big knock against him coming out of the draft as well, but clearly he had one five-walk performance, which was his last start of the season where he was clearly hurt. Uh, And then he had another five walk performance earlier on in the year, but he followed that up with 11 scoreless innings and 18 strikeouts across those eight, across those 11 innings. So I I feel like if he can just stay healthy, I don't think it's out of the question that Carlos Tavares is a guy who maybe even ends up in Norfolk by the end of the year. I I really, really like this arm and think there could be something there. Yeah, that is a good call. Both of those choices are great. And yeah, there's pretty much a million ways you can take a, a breakout candidate where, you know, are you talking guys that are going to come out of nowhere like or, or rebound like a Michael Hernandez maybe could be a breakout since he's he's had all this hype, hasn't arrived, and then maybe this is the year it does. Or, you know, I'm, I went with the approach of these are the guys who could be like the big time, get on the, the radar, the top upper end, upper top five, top seven of the prospect rankings by midseason. And for my hitter, I went with, Kobe Mayo, guy we just had on the podcast last month. I just think I could see a path where he is the Gunnar Henderson of this season. If there's going to be one every year, that'd be amazing. But uh, I think he is the him or Daryl Hernandez are the candidates to do so. Just so happen to have him on pretty much back to back in December. Uh, young guys, but I'm going with Mayo here. He's just turned 21. 
He's got all the potential in the world. I think it's kind of underrated how fast he moved up the system and just how young he is for the level of play that he's he's done. And he is a dedicated, motivated guy this offseason to try and make a big move. And I think that power plus just growing more into his frame as he becomes an adult human being is going to uh, be a maturity that shows up on the field in 2023. That is weird to say. And uh, I think he's going to come out blazing fire guns blazing in a double a to start the year. And I think he's knocking on the major league door by the end of of the season, kind of like Gunnar Henderson. And for my pitcher, I went with Cade Povich, the guy that the, Orioles and Michael Elias targeted in the trade deadline acquisition from the Twins for Jorge Lopez, just based on the quotes that he was the guy they targeted. He was the big prize. We saw the potential. We saw the stuff that he had in his brief time with the Orioles in the minor league since after the trade. And we liked what we saw, and he hadn't even been worked on, really. They basically just said, go do your thing, and we'll work on you, work with you in the offseason to improve things. And I think that's going to happen. And I think he's going to be a big-time pitching prospect. I think once D.L. Hall, Grayson Rodriguez inevitably graduate, he will be the big dog at the top of the pitching ranks when it comes to the system. Can I just say, no one? We had a lot of responses to that tweet, and not a single person said Kate Povich. I, I was disappointed, not going to lie. Sleeping. <laughs> yeah, that is surprising when you consider that Povich in some ways kind of has already started to break out. Um but I, I think all four of your choices are good. For mine, you know, Bob mentioned that if there's someone who could follow the Gunnar Henderson path in 2023, it's Kobe Mayo. I picked a player who I think could follow the Colton Cowser path, which is start out at high A and end at AAA in Dylan Beavers. Uh, Beavers, after being drafted out of Cal last summer, quickly made an adjustment to his swing while working with the Orioles. John Mioli has written about that extensively over his newsletter. Um, but that adjustment had pretty immediate results for him, and it really worked out. He hit well at Delmarva before he was promoted to Aberdeen. He looked good there. Probably going to start back there, but this is a guy who had showed a lot of raw talent at the plate at Cal, and I think the Orioles have a good plan in place for him to really break out. And on top of that, he's a good defensive outfielder, so I could see him moving quickly this year. And then my pick for pitchers is a guy down who's probably going to be at Del Marva this year, and that's Juan Rojas, who was part of the Jorge Lopez trade. Rojas, I think, you know, was sort of not seen as a throw-in necessarily. I don't think that would be fair to say, but I think we had the least amount on Rojas because only 18 years old. He was in the FCL at the time of the trade, and in fact, he finished out with the FCL Orioles. This is an, you know, soon-to-be 19-year-old left-hander who has a good mix of secondaries, including a good slider. Um, Fastball right now primarily running in the upper 80s and low 90s, but he can ramp it up to 93. And I think that if you look at how the Orioles have worked with other left-handers in the past, including John Means, one of the things that we know that the Orioles know how to do is teach the change up. And if they can work in with Rojas' slider, he can seize that pitch and prove. Maybe you get a little bit of a velocity spike. That could really lay the foundation for him to really rise up the ranks in the next few years. But I think he's up for the challenge at low A. 
Yeah, love those picks as well, especially Dylan Beavers. He's he was another one I was considering, but I saw you already put him down. So, you know, wanted to mix things up a little bit, give some different names. But one of my things I want to watch the most in 2023 is the race between him and Judd Fabian to see who can shoot up this uh, minor league ladder the fastest, kind of like Jordan Westberg and Gunnar Henderson. You know, Westberg had the head start on the infield. Gunnar got there first. And I think Fabian might have the slight edge going into 2023, just based off of how they ended their brief professional debuts. But I think those two are going to be fun to watch as they climb the ranks together. I'm going back through the list. And uh, yeah, a lot of Samuel Basayos, good answers from a lot of people. A lot of Joey Ortiz. I'm glad people are on the Joey Ortiz hype train. Uh, a lot of Grayson Rodriguez as, as well. The interesting one I saw a couple of people mention, and I'm I'm honestly really fascinated by him because I don't know how to feel yet. But Max Wagner, the third baseman out of Clemson, the Orioles grabbed ACC Player of the Year, just ungodly numbers he put up, uh, and didn't not even starting the season as Clemson's starting third baseman. I think he was a bench guy and ended up emerging as the, the leader there, leader in the ACC, not just Clemson, but. He was the guy who I tried to watch a lot last year and was just, he was kind of there. But again, that was his draft year after playing a full season of, you know, college ball through the ACC. So I don't really have many major takeaways on a lot of those guys in their draft year, just get comfortable. But I am fascinated to see what he does next year. And is he a true breakout guy? Are we really underrating him or who is he in the system? That is a great call because I really wanted to pick him because I feel like he's kind of getting John Rhodes, if I can uh, turn that into a a, a phrase, um, where it's just like, he, I don't know, it's not as much John Rhodes where it's like a generic name because Max Wagner, I mean, it's fairly generic, but it's just like he's a right-handed pa- hitting, power-hitting guy that he didn't get a ton of, I don't know, that he just didn't do anything that stood out necessarily so far, but clearly there's a reason they took him where they did, and I do think... He's probably being underrated, but just I can't prove it yet. Yeah, Wagner, I feel like it's it's interesting because he broke out seemingly last spring, like Nick said, and it feels like if there is a true helium guy right now, it probably is Wagner. I feel like I didn't really get to see enough of him after he entered the system last year to make much of a judgment or find out enough about him, but there's definitely some really promising signs, and there is a guy who hits the ball really hard. Um, I think that's one thing that's apparent is that there's real power there. And to have that in the third baseman in today's game is pretty valuable. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, how about Jackson Holiday? I know he was the number one pick in the draft. He's number three in the system, pretty highly ranked already. But I legitimately think there's a chance he could be one of the best, if not the top prospect in baseball by the time 2023 is over. I mean... I can't remember who it was. Was that Jonathan Mayo? Maybe someone on Jim the Callis. I know Callis had the quote. Oh, saying, okay. There's another one. Okay. Like Callis had the quote saying like he's Jackson holiday at this point in his career is a better prospect than Gunnar Henderson is, which I don't think is a hot take. I, I think that's pretty accurate. Cause we've mentioned before, like Gunnar was, we knew he was good. He was a really good prospect in the system, but we he didn't know he was so this good. Yeah. He took real steps last season, but, um, I think it was Mayo or maybe it was both of them. I don't know. They were doing some exercise of, you know, looking ahead a couple of years from now, who's going to be the top five guys on MLB pipelines, top 100. And I think it was like a consensus. Jackson holiday is going to be one, one, like we're going to replace Adley with Gunner with Jackson holiday in the very near future. Like that's, that's for certain to get. And like 
the kid still looks i still i see these pictures of him and he looks he looks younger and younger the more that i look at him but the numbers were fantastic and a lot of that underlying data i know john Milley wrote about it some of the underlying data that he had some of the quotes we got from brink ambler and some of the guys working with him and delmarva were just unbelievable so i'm i totally believe the hype he's a married man now too <laughs> married kid <laughs> well we'll certainly see how the their 2023 seasons play out but nonetheless those are some of the names you can keep an eye on as we gear up for the spring uh, we're going now a recap of what happened since we were last on the air uh, in late December. And really the biggest move and the one we're going to start with tonight is the acquisition of James McCann in a trade with the Mets. The Orioles will pick up McCann for cash considerations and a player to be named later. There is two years, $24 million remaining on a contract that McCann signed with the Mets prior to the 2021 season. The Mets, however, will be covering... 19 million of that total. So essentially the Orioles are going to pay James McCann 5 million over the next two years to be their backup catcher. Now, first of all, it feels great to be in this position now, unlike a year ago, where if this kind of move had been made, it would have been, well, are they trying to hold Adley back in this organization for two years with McCann? Now we have a pretty clear understanding. This is the backup catcher. And I have to say my reaction to this move has been that the Orioles got a better player for that role than what they could have gotten on the market uh, by the time the trade was made. Catcher market, which was not that deep to begin with this offseason as far as free agency was concerned, was drying up quickly. And basically how I look at it is that the Orioles will pay uh, about the same, if not the exact same amount of money to James McCann to be their backup catcher over the next two years as the Pirates are paying Austin Hedges to be their starter this year. Um, that's kind of one way to look at it. You figure the backup catcher market for someone, the quality of McCann is going to run you around there. Now it's worth noting that McCann got a big contract for the Mets after a breakout season in Detroit. He did not live up to that with the Mets and struggled last year amid some injuries. Correction on that one. It was with breakout with the Chicago White Sox in 2020, not Tigers um, struggled last year amid some injuries. He didn't hit well in 2021 either. The Mets were pretty deep at catcher. And at this point, McCann was expendable. So his days, I think as a starter, at least at a high level are over, but as a backup catcher, um, a clear defensive upgrade over Robinson Torinos. And although the bat has dropped in production a little bit, McCann has historically hit left-handed pitching well. And if there's one flaw you could probably find in Adley Rutschman's game last year, he didn't really hit that well from the right side of the plate. So the Orioles do have another option they can roll out against left-handers. So, Bob, I'll start with you on this. Um, for what this move is, which is basically kind of a low-risk way to bring in a backup catcher, what are your thoughts on it? You know, when I first saw it announced, I was like, okay, I guess, you know, that works. You don't have to especially when I saw how much money was getting picked up. I'm like, yeah, that works. You basically a two year, $5 million deal, decent backup catcher improvement over Robinson Chirinos. But the more I think about it, the more I like it. I think it seems like the Orioles have really focused on like great clubhouse guys, leaders in the clubhouse in these small improvements that they've made this offseason. And McCann seems to fit that bill once more. And I think it's actually 
to the team's benefit that he is under contract for two years, not just this year. So he can, you know, he can really just focus on becoming a good tandem with some of these pitchers and work with Adley as far as the little things that maybe he could still use some work on. And yeah, I think he's probably not going to be a great hitter. He was, I think he hit worse than, than Cheerios did last year, but he at least has more potential. He's what, 31, 32. He's got some pop. He can hit lefties. He's better defensively. I don't think anyone could be much worse, uh, at least as far as framing goes. Um, you know, so I, I just I think it's a really good underrated move, and that's just what the Orioles have been doing this entire offseason. We're just waiting for that one big splash, that flashy move, which I do think is going to come before spring training, but we shall see. But, yeah, I'm a fan of the deal, and um, I'm, I'm interested to see how he does. Maybe he gets – he talked about today getting time at – at first base, him and Adley. So a, a few ways they can mix up the, the lineup and get his his bat and glove in, in there. Yeah, I think for – I also agree that the big move, I'm still holding out hope that it definitely is coming. I think somebody's going to get super desperate here in the last couple of weeks before teams leave for spring training. Uh, somebody's going to get super desperate for, for a big bat in their lineup. Uh, but – I have no issues whatsoever with this trade. I thought it was pretty solid at financially speaking. Like that was the big thing there. Yeah. The $24 million, but when you only have to pay him $5 million for two years, that's huge. And then you DFA Tyler Nevin in response to that move, who like, he wasn't going to have a role in this team in 2023. And like, Sorry, it's, <laughs> like, it's not a hot take, but like, he just wasn't good. Right. Um, who was that? Was that Eric Longenhagen? That was like, yeah, he's a KBO guy. Um, he's, he's just not going to cut in the major leagues. Uh, like, and I did have a little bit of hope for him. I think it was cool. Like his debut, I remember his debut. It was, what, was that on his birthday? And he like doubled or something? Or I don't know. Like, he had a good run in town. But so you DFA him to make room for McCann. And then you trade Nevin to Detroit for cash consideration. So you make even more money there on this whole deal. But yeah, like for what it is, he's a backup catcher who's I'm sure is going to see more at bats than a lot of Orioles fans want because anytime a lineup card comes out that doesn't have Adley behind the plate, people are going to be in an uproar, but you're not expecting him to hit 300 or 20 home runs this year. He's a competent. All you need is a competent catcher behind the plate to make sure that this pitching staff feels comfortable when Adley's not behind the plate. And like, I'm not too concerned about his offense though, just because he also had two major injuries last season, like a fractured handmade bone and an oblique injury. So I'm sure that he wasn't, I'm sure those injuries kind of lingered for a lot longer than he was just on the IL for. So I'm not saying you're going to see any major improvements from his numbers, but he can easily improve on his, it was like a five something OPS he had last season, as long as he's healthy. And actually, if you compare his offensive numbers with Trinos's numbers, they're actually not that different. I mean, Trinos was maybe like a point or two here. They're better uh, in about the same number of at bats. So yeah, uh, huge. And the big thing for me is just the defense. I mean, take take the fan graphs numbers for what you will, but just by looking at that and some of the public numbers we have on Baseball Savant, which you know everybody shared these numbers already before, but the fan graphs defensive rating, Jason McCann, 5.8, Trinos minus 11.4. We know Trinos is one of the worst defenders in all of baseball. I'm sure he's a great person and a great clubhouse guy, but the discrepancy in just about every defensive metric you can look up is just as big as that. those two numbers I just mentioned were – that's all I need to see. So the offense is what it is. Defense, that's where it's at. And you're paying him pretty much nothing for it. And you didn't lose anything for it. A player to be named later who maybe we have some ideas, but like they said, it's not going to be anybody significant. So cool. 
Yeah, and someone mentioned that McCann might have been a quote from Elias, but that McCann's uh, expected numbers were like he was pretty much very unlucky last year as far as batter ball data goes, and his expected numbers were like exponentially better than what he actually put up in the time that he had. Yeah, obviously we don't know the player to be named later yet, but we'll have a breakdown of that when that move is announced, probably in the coming weeks or months. Uh, sometimes those can take a little while to go through, but of course, when the player to be named later is announced, we'll have some discussion on that. A couple of other 40-man roster moves to note. Nick noted that Tyler Nevin was designated for assignment. Um, the Orioles also traded Loewen Diaz to the Braves for cash. And then um, as they continued this sort of carousel that they're on right now of first base options, they picked up Ryan O'Hearn, um, who signed the minor league, who was claimed off waivers, and in the process, DFA'd Chris Valamont. Um, O'Hearn acquired from the Royals in exchange for cash considerations in a move that was announced here on Monday. The Orioles' 40-man roster stood at 40 players at that time. So they designated Chris Valamont for assignment. Now, if you listened to our show a lot last summer, you probably heard Valamont's name. Uh, he was a guy the Orioles claimed off waivers from the Twins. Valamont had been on the 40-man roster in Minnesota but had struggled over a season plus at A Wichita to basically be successful at the A level, was walking a lot of batters. He gets to Bowie very quickly, makes some adjustments. The walks go down, and then he's promoted to Norfolk. The baseline numbers at Norfolk weren't great, but I held out some hope that with a longer time period in the Orioles system, Valamont could continue to build off of what he had done at Bowie last year and possibly be an option for the Orioles pitching staff at some point in 2023. Um, now, I should note that just because he's designated for assignment, that doesn't mean that Valamont is necessarily gone from the Orioles. Um, however, it does seem possible that a team could claim him off waivers uh, here in the next week or so. So, Bob, I'll start with your reaction to this move. And I, I guess let me ask you this, which is, is it possible to view these moves separately and see picking up O'Hearn for one thing and then designating Valamont as another? Yeah, actually, I do think that is ultimately where I come down on it, where it's like you could tell just looking at the 40-man roster that there was not enough position players on there compared to pitchers, at least coming into spring training. At least that's the way it looked like to me. It was like, what was it? I, I don't have the exact numbers, but, you know, they were going to have to DFA some of these pitchers either way. And I wonder if this is just like we're going to have to do it anyway. Maybe we can grab O'Hearn while he's available and then pass him through waivers as well at a certain point. I don't know. But my first reaction was, ew, like not Ryan O'Hearn. As soon as I saw he was DFA'd, which such a weird circumstance where the Royals like offer him arbitration. I think they settle on like a 1.4, 1.5 contract. And then they DFA him anyway, like a week or two later. Super weird. As soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, don't tell me the Orioles are about to grab this guy. And of course they do. And of course, it's one of our guys, Chris Valamont, who uh, gets the fade in, in his stead. Hopefully, like, it's more, it doesn't bother me that they grabbed O'Hearn, honestly. I mean, whatever. He's going to be just like Lewin Davis. He's going to be churned like the Hanser Alberto. He'll be DFA'd and claimed and DFA'd and claimed by a million teams. Uh, so hopefully, you know, they, they DFA him in the next day or two, a week or so, and then he'll make it to AAA or, or whatever. But 
what hurt the most was uh and that's a song um that uh chris valamont was the guy that gets gets the gets the waiver and uh hopefully he he passes through because like you said i think he's got a big arm talented arm good breaking stuff i actually think he's still got starter potential um but worst case i think he could be a nice if he ever got his command in check he could be a pretty nice middle to late end reliever on this bullpen um and this team has proven that they could improve the command. Look at Felix Bautista, even a guy like Keegan Aiken. So, yeah, hopefully he stays in and he still gets that chance. I, I think it's possibly passes through, but I would not be shocked if if another team with uh, a more rebuilding phase than Orioles currently are at will we'll take a chance on him. Yeah, I, did, I haven't looked up any Ryan O'Hearn stats. Not going to, don't care about this Tyler Nevin 2.0. Lewin Diaz 2.0. Like I'm not, and I'm also just not going to get worked up either way. It's, I don't think he's going to be around come opening day. So it's kind of whatever, which is why if, if the organization thinks he can serve some purpose, some role that they feel like they need at the major league level, fine, go for it. Like I trust, obviously I trust this organization's analytics and what they're looking at a, a lot more than what I uh, have never looked at with O'Hearn. But, um, DFA and Valamont does did kind of sting just a little bit, but I completely understand why you want to do it. Like he did have a few impressive starts early on in Norfolk. And then I was, I got excited. I remember watching some of those early starts and getting excited. Like he's, he's going to prove us right here. He's really going to take off in AAA. And then he was kind of up and down. And I never really viewed him as a starter either. I agreed with Bob's point there. Like I kind of viewed him as this another tall, powerful righty that you can deploy in the later innings. But I think just him being on the 40 man kind of hurt because you need those spots. You needed some more bats. And then you already, you look at the rest of this 40 man and the pitchers on this 40 man, like Noah DeNoyer, like we love him, but he's not going to contribute at the major leagues this year. I, I would highly doubt it, at least. Maybe by the end of the season, a spot starter, maybe a bullpen appearance or two. Drew Rom, best case scenario, he comes up midseason like seth johnson's stuck on the 60 or he's stuck on the 40 man right now until they can put him on the 60 day il and open up a spot but you got a lot of guys on that 40 man who are not or cannot contribute to the major league roster this year so valamont i think got the short end of the stick there i'd be a little bit more ticked off if it was you know a logan gillespie or a nick vespi a guy who has shown that they can they've got something in the major leagues vespi has had success Gillespie, I think, continues to be an underrated guy. I was surprised the Orioles didn't use him maybe a little bit more last year, but I think he's still someone with a little bit of upside. We know the data on him is really good, and the organization's was at least going into last season pretty high on him. So it's it's Valamont. He's got a long way to go, I think, to get to the majors, but I do hope he sticks around. I, I don't think the odds are very high. I think another analytically inclined team rolls the dice on him for sure. Maybe it's Detroit since they want to roll with Cody Sedlock and Brendan Hanafee and Tyler Nevin. Maybe they roll with Valamont as well. But um, yeah, it's I it's it's fine. You know, it's at Valamont. I don't think the odds were super high that he ever became a big time major, major league contributor. But it he was an in, interesting arm. I think to see what the Orioles could have gotten out of him. And as the Orioles are getting good, I mean, this is a problem. Good teams face where. 40 man is filled with guys with either that are good or they're have a chance to be good. And you're going to have to get rid of some of them eventually. I mean, what are your other options? Spencer Watkins, which I don't know if you can DFA a guy like that who just improved so much from 2021 and can be a guy that can just sit in Norfolk and you can depend on five or six innings from if you need a starter. 
maybe Yenier Cano, but you just traded for him. So do you really want to get rid of him that fast? So, yeah, I feel like if it wasn't going to be now, it was going to be whenever the next move or two was make it was made. Maybe a Joe, Joey Crable, but even he had some value at some point last year. So it's just it's just tough. Hopefully he passes through, but it is what it is. Yeah, I hope he passes through, but isn't it somewhere in the rule of order now um, that the Giants must claim anyone that's <laughs> claim or sign anyone that was let go by the Orioles? Yeah, Brett Cumberland I, represent. <laughs> I think the rule is if you have less than like two years of MLB service time, you go to San Francisco. If you have more, you go to, to the Mets because they just signed like TJ McFarland today, I saw, and they've got like five former Orioles minor leaguers. Which is why, going back to James McCann, the player to be named later is going to be Caden Grenier, just because they drafted him in 2018 when Buck Showalter was still there, and Buck Showalter's like, I know him. He's coming back with us as well. So like the Mets are just stockpiling those guys as well. But yeah, and Giants would make a ton of sense. The Mets still might get former Oriole Carlos Correa, so you never know. Uh, I think the mention of Caden Grenier is a good jumping-off point here for our look back at the very first list that we did in 2020. This was uh, planned in February and early March of 2020 when we thought there would still be a minor league baseball season in 2020. We all know how that worked out, but uh, it's still an interesting list to look back on because this is sort of, in my mind, the last year where you see an intersection of the end of the Duquette years and the beginning of the Michael Elias regime because all you had from really Mike Elias was that 2019 draft class. And then a lot of the lists are players who were either drafted or otherwise acquired under Dan Duquette. Um, but it's still nonetheless interesting to look back on. And what stood out to me were some of the players that we had ranked in that 20 to 30 range. And this is really where we did not know where to stick a lot of these players. Um, and you see Joey Ortiz um, ranked at 28th. But then a reminder of how different things were back then. He's above Caden Grenier and one spot behind Blaine Knight. Um, <laughs> so just uh, kind of a snapshot in time right there. But nevertheless, kind of an interesting mix of names who have either seen their stocks rise or dip in the last few years. And I'll just kind of go in groups of 10 here, 30 through 20, and then on down. Number 30 was Adam Stauffer, who's still in the organization. Caden Grenier, 29th. Joey Ortiz, 28th. Blaine Knight, 27th. At 26, we had Gray Fenter, who the following year would surprisingly be taken in the Rule 5 draft, um, only to come back to the Orioles. And then last year was with the Giants organization. Brennan Hanafy, 25th, who, as Nick now mentioned, is with the Tigers. Uh, 24th, we had Zach Watson. 23, Daryl Hernandez. 22, Cody Sedlock. 21, Ryland Bannon. And at number 20, one of the pitchers that came over in the Dylan Bundy trade, Kyle Braddis. Um, so this was before Braddis got a lot of attention, but it's a guy now that obviously stands out as being a little underranked, but – that's kind of where the industry consensus was with him after he came over from the Angels. So looking at this part of the list, Nick, first of all, what do you remember about having to put together 
let's say the last 15 spots on the list and how do you feel about it now these are some names uh i wish we could go back like five years we were doing this to compare that list because i'm sure that would be even uh more unbelievable but yet stoffer was i think stoffer had his fans among the the orioles fandom who really followed the minor leagues uh and were knowledgeable followers of the minor leagues i know bob's still a fan but like he had a he had a good following, and I believe like he was even a top thirty guy, you know, national list as well at times, if I remember correctly. He just he's six seven. I mean, the guy was a monster. He had just dominant numbers in the lower levels of the minor leagues, and now you read his report. I think last year's preseason list on Fangraphs was like Eric Longenhagen's. Like I. I think the direct quote was, I don't know like how he does this. Like he pitches well, but like I don't see anything in the data that tells me he should be pitching this well. He just does it. Um, you know, nasty curveball. He still does. Uh, he's still alive, still kicking, still pitching in this system. Uh, but that was an interesting one. Uh, Caden Grenier, I think just kind of it's fun reading like what you wrote about him here too. Like Caden Grenier, just he nothing changed there. He is who he is. But now he was what the fifth that would put him fifth shortstop on this top 30 list. So the fifth ranked shortstop in the organization at that time. Now, like I would not put him in my top 10 shortstops in the Orioles organization, uh, to be honest. Like Elsewhere, like Blaine Knight, I, I was a big Blaine Knight fan. I thought even though he's a stick figure, I thought he could, just good strikeout numbers. I, I thought he was going to give me a little bit more, but he really kind of fell off a late last year. I think the beginning of the end for Blaine Knight was when the three of us went and watched him pitch in Bowie, actually. I, after that, I don't think he was ever the same. Um, elsewhere, I mean, it's Zach Watson. I, we think we did – I like to be in that high on him at that point, and I do – I think we kind of mentioned in the write-up, like, hey, watch out for this guy. And then he didn't break out in 2020 because he didn't have the chance. But 2021, he did hit, you know, what, 20 home runs and – had a bit of a breakout, but last year, season. yeah, took a big step back. Uh, for me, it was, it's interesting to see Kyle Bradish there at twenty. I don't, I know for me, I didn't really know what to do with those guys because every report you read, <clears throat> none of these guys had pitched except for Bradish, but none, no one else in that trade had experience because the Angels sat them all their draft year. But everyone was like, "Well, this is a quantity over quality trade. All four of these guys are relievers." Bradish doesn't have the command. You had this list was put together before we had uh, what's his name from Baseball America. I don't even remember his name. Um, on is like Bradish says nothing. I saw him in 2019 and he was terrible. Like and now he's one of the top starting pitchers on, on this team it, with the arrow still pointing up. So it's good to see that it's the hits and misses. I think if there's one guy in this bottom ten that I was like, I was probably a lot higher on than anyone else. It probably would have been Cody Sedlock to be honest. I thought for sure that after the – and reading what – was that John Mulley too that came out and had a little bit – he dug into Cody Sedlock's story and Sedlock – the previous regime had no clue what was going on with Sedlock health-wise. Like he needed thoracic outlet surgery. He gets that. He comes back from that. He's throwing 95, 96 miles an hour, good curveball, pitching well in buoy. And I thought for sure this guy is going to make it, carve out a role in the major leagues as a reliever. I truly believed in his stuff, and it, it just didn't work out. It was cool he got his MLB debut with the Orioles, but now he's in Detroit and see what he can do. But the bottom 10 of this list is uh, was interesting. A lot of guys that I was high on, and now they're struggling to hang on in baseball. Yeah. I mean, the thing that stands out for me with Kyle Radish is 
in this write-up, Bradish sits in the low 90s with his fastball. Well, now he sits like 97 as a starting pitcher in the major leagues. So clearly him and the Orioles did a great job developing the talent that was latent there. And what really stands out to me is what this is 2020 before the shortened draft, free agency after the draft, another international class or two in another draft in 2021. So if you fast forward to like, August 2021, after that draft, this group of Ryland Bannon, Cody Sedlock, Brennan Hanafi, Gray Fenter, Blaine Knight, Caden Grenier, Adam Stauffer, these are guys that are like 40, 35 to, to 50 range uh, in the same exact system like a year later where they're at the bottom of the 30. So it's just remarkable how quickly and nothing really changed from them from that time to there as far as like their performance and prospects. But Elias and company were just able to really fill this system with depth so quickly that they kind of phased down naturally. And Daryl Hernandez, Hernandez, who is 23 here, he he also floats down with the depth that comes in, but now is shooting his way up. So it's just cool to see. And Joey Ortiz, this is pre-muscle adding, pre-breakout 2021, pre-break literally his injury. Um but just cool to see his name on this list as well. But just goes to show how quickly that this system has improved. I remember, and I think you guys might have been in the same boat, struggling what to make of Ortiz and Watson, especially Ortiz, because we had kept hearing that glove first shortstop label over and over again. And you saw the reports. It was, you know, he hit well in college, but he played, you know, at a hitter's park in New Mexico. Um, what you saw at Aberdeen last year was not that impressive. That was when Aberdeen was short season A still. And I just remember it's like the Orioles have so many players like this because they have him, they have Caden Grenier, and they have Mason McCoy, who at that point was actually seen as a guy that might be on the verge of breaking out. And didn't, yeah, self-references there. (laughs) Um, But, you know, it's interesting now to think that that was a struggle, but that's kind of where Ortiz was as a prospect at that point. I had no one really knew. I think that basically the book on the report or the book on his offense was going to draw a lot of walks, has a good plate approach, doesn't hit the ball hard. His defense is what's going to have to carry him. And he completely flipped that script. Yeah, I'm getting going back and like listening to that and reading that right up again, I'm getting a lot of Caden Grenier without the strikeout issue vibes from that version of Joey Ortiz that we thought we were getting. And yeah, like what were those numbers in New Mexico? How would they translate to the big leagues? Because you heard that with Nick Gonzalez as well. Same thing. It's like, yeah, they put up astronomical numbers in New Mexico, but they're playing at like one of the highest elevations in the entire country as far as college baseball is concerned. So yeah, it's, it's really amazing to see his rise through the system. And now you mentioned Mason McCoy too, man. I remember early podcasting, like Mason McCoy should be on this major league roster and he's got a role and he can be that glove first guy. And yeah, he's in Seattle's organization hitting like 20 home runs now apparently, but um, playing out there in the PCO. But yeah, it's it's really cool to see the rise for Ortiz and Hernandez And the fact that, and Hernandez talked about this when he was on, like you've added... Gunnar Henderson has become who Gunnar Henderson is, but you've added Jackson Holiday, you've added Michael Hernandez, you've added Leandro Arias, Edwin Amparo, you've added so many of these more of these middle infielders. Frederick Ben Cosme has come out of the woodwork. So many of these other guys have 
entered the system and are starting to rise up the ranks and Ortiz and Hernandez are sticking like one step ahead of most of these guys. And it's cool to see their development over the last couple of years as well. Yeah. I also think it's interesting to, to note the way we did this was differently was different than the way we do it now, where we come up with our own individual list and then tally up the, the stuff and see where they fall. I think we actually all got on a call with Steven Loftus and like mm-hmm. decided, okay, what are we going to do from here? And we kind of went step by step and just tried to do a consensus thing, but just, just interesting how it's evolved over the years. We'll go now to the 19 to 10 range. Number 19 was Bruce Zimmerman and number 18 was another left-hander, Alex Wells. At 17th, Zach Pop, 16th, Ryan McKenna. And then at 15th, another outfielder by the name of Kyle Stowers. Drew Rahm was 14th. Uh, he was tabbed as a potential breakout pitching prospect in 2020 at that time. Uh, at number 13, Adam Hall, 12th, Hunter Harvey, who was on yet another leg of his six-year tour on Orioles' top 30 prospect list. Uh, number 11, Keegan Aiken, and then 10th, Zach Lothar. Um, so first of all, it, it's interesting to see that mix of left-handers in there um, and the fact that I think we're now a few years removed from this and for some of those pitchers, our assessments of them may have lowered, but yet they're still in the picture. Uh, in the case of Aiken and Zimmerman. And then to see Stowers right there at 15th ahead of Ryan McKenna, which was kind of risky at the time because McKenna was seen as the high floor reserve outfielder, which is the kind of player he could very well prove to be. Whereas Stowers, it kept coming back to the strikeouts. And, you know, he can hit for power, but he strikes out. He didn't hit that well after the draft um, when he first got into pro ball. So that was another one where kind of like Joey Ortiz, I remember struggling, like, where do I put Kyle Stowers on this list? Yeah, Yeah, I know I was super low on him at that point. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, can admit when I'm wrong. But the thing that this little section of the list tells me about where the Orioles are is that, they're much better at developing the guys that they targeted to bring in rather than just the guys that happened to be here. Like look at the guys who they inherited Bruce Zimmerman, Alex Wells, um, Adam Hall, Hunter Harvey, Keegan Aiken, Zach Lothar. They kind of fell off. I mean, Aiken had some success last year and Zimmerman still has a chance, but they didn't really, you know, thrive the way that Kyle Stowers, and Drew Rahm to an extent did, and Zach Pop, that one still hurts to lose him. And even, you know, Ryan McKenna was here, and he's basically just reached his his floor of a, a fourth or fifth outfielder. But I think to me it shows this this player development. They know what they want to do and just let them bring in their own guys rather than uh, trying to force a square peg into a round hole. Yeah, I mean – I mean, we mentioned there in the write-up, and I think that was consensus thinking with McKenna. He's a fourth outfielder that adds defense and some late-game pop, make things interesting, and I think that's what he does. So like, the role he's carved out for himself is being a guy who's a fringe top-20 prospect in that system, even in this 2020 ranking. Like That's that's a solid career. I think he panned out pretty well. Uh, I am – yeah, I, th- I was hoping more – at least one of these guys would truly break out among the Zimmerman, Wells, Aiken – Rom, this group of lefties. Although it, it was good to see that we were, we've been consistent with Drew Rom, him having him above all these other lefties. 
saying his ceiling is higher. That's proving to be true here. Wells, for me, like Bob mentioned, being lower on Kyle Stowers, and that for me, it was always like the power. Like I, I just could not ignore that. I was a low guy on on Wells. I just I remember being super stoked just seeing the numbers that he would put up in the lower levels of the minor leagues. And I remember when he finally got to Frederick and that's like an easy hour, 45 minute drive for me. So back when I was teaching like summers where I, I didn't do anything over the summer. I apparently teachers do like professional development stuff over the summer. I did not, which is maybe why I'm not teaching anymore, but um whole nother podcast, but like it, it was an easy drive Salem. They Frederick played Salem a lot. That's like a 45 minute drive for me. And I remember being stoked about seeing Alex Wells for the first time and going up to Frederick. And I think it, he play he pitched against that Charlotte's high A team. And I think at the time, like Luis Robert and some other, they had a stacked high A team. And Alex Wells got rocked. Uh, I went a couple weeks later. He got rocked again. Went a couple weeks later. He got rocked again. And I know that was Frederick. And we always kind of joked like uh, we're – Kind of a little bit happy that Frederick's not affiliated anymore because pitchers just got destroyed up there pitching in that ballpark. But I, I just I couldn't see it anymore with Wells, uh, and unfortunately he's not in the organization anymore. But yeah, it's it's good to see Rom still sticking around, and I think the big miss here was like Adam Hall at thirteen. I I don't know what we were thinking there. That was that that's a rough one to look back on. I remember thinking, man, this this guy, he's super young, super fast, get hit for a better average than you would expect. If he can stick it shortstop, he gets on base. I yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it was it was a bad you learn from your mistakes, let's say that. Yeah, I remember when Rom was at Del Marva in twenty nineteen, hearing a lot of positive reports about him and feeling like it, it was probably the correct move to put him ahead of at least Wells and Zimmerman at that point. Um, and in hindsight, I wish I'd put him a little bit higher. Um, but I feel like I got that. But then with Hall, it was the same thing. It was all like all of these positive reports. And it's just like all he has to do is get a little bit stronger and hit the ball harder and watch out because these guys can stick up the middle, like Bob said, elite speed. And it just didn't work out. I don't think he's been fully healthy the last – two seasons and that is part of it but the bat just has not developed the way that you would hope it would and it's really hard now i think to be a speed first utility guy that sticks around the major leagues um and hall has sort of now if you have a ceiling for adam hall it's probably where it is but at the time it almost looked like if this guy starts hitting the ball harder that's a possible table setter at the major league level who's going to play both sides of the second base bag pretty well. This is going to sound insane now, but I was thinking, could this be our Trey Turner coming up here? <laughs> you know, had that that was the idea, but no, definitely not. I mean, he was extremely fast on the base path. Uh, and I think at, for a while that he was like the fastest prospect in this system. Uh, and yeah, just no power though. But I thought maybe, yeah, he gets a little older and he played high school ball in Canada. Didn't he, he grew up somewhere else. He didn't grow up in Canada though. I think he's was originally maybe from somewhere else. I, I want to say somewhere maybe I can't remember, but I, 
I feel like I remember saying like, all right, he maybe he's not playing the best competition up in Canada. He's going to get down here. He's going to be a late bloomer. It's all going to pan out. I was, I'm pretty sure I jumped on locked on Orioles at least one time and hyped up Adam Hall. I in the write up, it even says like he's might be the most polarizing prospect in this range because of that. Like the, a lot of people just did not like him. And a lot of people, myself included, and I tried to push that agenda uh, and it, that was that was a bad move on my part. So I, I apologize for that one. So Hall was uh, born in Hamilton, Bermuda. Bermuda, that's right. That's right. Okay, not the Midwest. <laughs> so before we move on, I, seeing Zach pop at seventeen stings just a little bit still does. Yep. Um, and I'll just say on air that that has been the move of the Mike Elias era that I have liked the least. And I think that if you if you had to, and the fact that these are the two worst moves so far, I think speaks highly of the organization. But the two worst are probably the Mike Yastrzemski trade and not protecting Zach Pop before the Bull 5 draft. The Yastrzemski trade, though, at the time kind of made sense because Yastrzemski was in an area where the Orioles actually already had some depth, which was the outfield. And he was a guy that I remember routinely getting, you know, labeled as too old for the level everywhere he went. And he's one of the reasons now why I'm a lot more cautious to stick that on players. Um, but at the time, the move to trade Michael Elias to the Giants kind of made sense on paper. It just didn't work. Pop, on the other hand, was a guy who threw a hard sinker, a lot of ground ball rates. And looks like once he got over the hump with Tommy John surgery, got back from his rehab, was going to become a bullpen piece at the major league level quickly. If there's a silver lining in all of that, it's that the Orioles development program has allowed them to go out and fill that void with guys like Brian Baker and Dylan Tate. But I just still don't know how pop slipped through the cracks. Yeah, yeah, that one. That, yeah, that will always be my number one uh, criticism of the Elias tenure. The Yastrzemski thing. I mean, he even looked terrible in spring training that year that he broke out. So I really, that would be a thousand percent hindsight to to knock him for that. But we were saying at the time, Pop should have been protected. Yeah, I. It, it is true. Like this organization can go out and get a waiver claim and turn him into something interesting. And there are some guys who. Your Yenny, your Canoes, your some of the other guys in this organization who nobody's talking about. Everybody wants to DFA uh, unknown prospects. I'm sure one of them will pop, for lack of a better word, there mm. uh, and become you know something. We we've seen guys emerge. Look at the this major league bullpen last year. But I do look back now and think, all right, well, what if we would have had Zach Pop himself in this organization? What could this player development staff have done? But clearly, they saw something. Uh, but yeah, the Shrimsky thing. You bring that up. That I. So Tyler Herb, uh, mm-hmm. I remember watching a lot of Tyler Herb starts thinking like this kid's gonna uh, he maybe he's something. Uh, he he never was. Uh, I don't even know where he is now. Maybe Seattle, I think last time I remember. But yeah, the Yastrzemski deal. I think Vivek had the comment there. He was Rule Five eligible three times, and three times everybody passed on him. Like, and he's every year the the production has decreased like every year over the last like three years. That uh, he's fine, but that trade I I no issues with at that time even looking back it's fine giants won it good job you got him yeah yippee giants yippee 
We'll move on now to the last 10, which is where some of the big names on this list are, but also some guys that have really dropped off in the last three years. Number 10, Zach Lothar. Number nine, Michael Ballman. Number eight, Dean Kramer. Number seven, Gunnar Henderson. Number six, Austin Hayes. Number five, Yusniel Diaz. Number four, Ryan Mountcastle. Number three, D.L. Hall. Number two, Grayson Rodriguez. Number one, Adley Rutschman. A couple of things that stood out to me when I looked at this list was that so far, I think Mountcastle over Hayes has proven to be correct. And I remember that my rationale at the time was that I thought Mountcastle's power was going to translate at the major league level. And Hayes had just not been able to string together a healthy, productive run in a few years. And I was just concerned that that was going to be a chronic issue for him, even though there was a lot of reports at that time saying that he could possibly be the Orioles everyday defensive center fielder. And then Zach Lothar, um, who I was high on up until about mid 2021 was when I think I really started to dive on him a little bit. And what I remember at the time we put this list together thinking was, He's just so deceptive. He has a good feel for his pitches. And he's one of those guys that kind of was part of that trend that Nick mentioned, where they would go to Frederick and their numbers would go in the wrong direction. So it's like, all right, well, it's a Frederick factor. It just got to Zach Lothar. It's going to get to a guy that, you know, relies on soft contact, uh, keeping the ball on the ground and hoping that fly balls don't go too far. Frederick was the kind of ballpark, and I, I guess still is at the summer collegiate level, that could punish guys like that. So I thought Lothar was going to go to Norfolk that year, pitch really well, probably factor into the pitching staff at the major league level at some point. And although he did get to the majors, he did get protected on the 40-man roster the following offseason. Things just obviously didn't work out quite according to plan. Yeah, I remember going to a game in Frederick and getting to watch Lothar for the first time there sitting right behind home plate and looking at some of his fastballs and be like, how are pit, how do pitches move like that? First of all, how do hitters hit that? Second of all, uh, just being super impressed with him. And then you see the, the numbers took, like you mentioned, they, they took a dive. The strikeout numbers took a real big dive when he got up to high A, like a, a massive hit. I mean, he's 12, 13, 14 strikeouts per nine innings down to like nine. Uh, once he got to high A and never really was able to get above that uh, as he continued to move up. And we've mentioned before, like the walks went up as he moved up the system, the walks went up, the strikeouts went down right? it, and it was a trend that he wasn't reversing. And he really didn't have at the lower levels. You're able to nibble around the edges. You're able to get guys with those pitches. But when you're, when you're forced to throw strikes in the zone, Lowther didn't have that pitch or that repertoire to get the job done. And so he, Last year was honestly after watching him throughout since Doros drafted him back in 2017. After watching him at every step along the way, and to see to watch him last season was rough. That in Norfolk and the pros, all of it, it was brutal to watch him and his fall from grace. But uh, it's, it's unfortunate for him. But yeah, for sure. I mean, what I remember about. Uh, the ranking of all these left-handed guys so close together and Lothar in particular. And what I've kind of learned from that experience is I could not, I could explain who Keegan Aiken was. I could explain who Alex Wells was like Lothar. I'm like, I couldn't explain why I would put him over the others. 
other than just looking at numbers. So like, if that's the case, maybe don't do that then. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's unfortunate. But if you look at nine and up, that's pretty solid. Outside of using Diaz, like that is pretty good. And obviously remains to be seen the, the ultimate destination of Rodriguez Hall. And what's the other one? Uh, Ballman. I mean, he could be a good bullpen guy, but it, I think that's a pretty good hit rate. Uh, maybe seven out of nine in the top of your uh, prospects uh, rankings. If they're going to make it to the majors and contribute, that's you'll take that every time. I will still contend personally. I think having used Neil Diaz there at five ahead of Austin Hayes. And I mean, having him ahead of gutter, we, we didn't know anything about gunner at that time. So that's, that's excusable, but having, Using the ideas ahead of Austin Hayes. And I think looking back at the Kyle Stowers write up, mentioning Kyle Stowers as a possible starter in the major leagues with uh, Austin Hayes and using the ideas. Woof. Um, but like, I will contend that having Diaz ahead of Hayes, honestly, was, in my opinion, a solid take because I just think that Diaz, and I will say this forever, forget about the fact that he was supposed to be the headliner of the Manny Machado trade. The Orioles butchered that textbook example of how not to handle your. You're a franchise player, but just looking at using Diaz as a prospect in this system, just him, uh, that he had all the tools. The tools were there. And I'm not saying a future all-star. I always believe that Diaz was a guy who you hit like sixth or seventh in your lineup. He's going to be a, a 260, 270 hitter, maybe 15 home runs max, 10 to 15 home runs a year, but like 30, 35 plus doubles every single year and be a fantastic right fielder with an incredible arm out there. It was just the health. Yeah, Vivek's comment, health is a sixth tool, and it is very important because it was never there. How many times did he come out of the gates over the last couple of years, like scorching hot, and you're like, what if? What if he stays healthy? And just like that, he pulls a hamstring. Every time he ran, uh, ran out a ground ball, I'm like, please stop running. It's a ground ball. Just go to the dugout because you're going to pull a hamstring. He did eventually every single time, but yeah, I, I still contend that Diaz, like the tools were all there. It was just health. And there's some other things too, like that got exposed as he went up, climbed up the ranks and was in AAA, but he was just never healthy enough to work on it at the plate with real life at bats. But unfortunate story there. Yeah. yeah I, it's hard, I, about, hard to uh, believe Austin Hayes was still prospect eligible, to be honest <laughs> at this point. And the cool thing is, is, and sorry, Zach, for interrupting you there. But in like, by the time May or June 2023 rolls around, I think the only guy on this list who will be eligible will probably be Drew Rom. Like that's the the highest. They'll all be graduated, uh, lost prospect eligibility. So that's something in and of itself. Yeah, going back to the Diaz thing, I think that that was the probably the correct take at the time because Diaz just had what looked like a more well-rounded skill set and although he had missed time because of injuries in 2019 we didn't have quite the track record yet like we had had with Austin Hayes um, as far as injury concerns went or at least it didn't seem that way and then I think that you know not getting up to the majors in 2020 you know, we didn't get to see Diaz then. And then 2021, he was never healthy. 2022, he struggled to stay healthy. And by that point, so many outfielders in the system had surpassed him. Um, so really, Diaz, I think at that point, you know, based on what we knew, I think we were right. But it just didn't work out 
because of health. And then Gunnar Henderson, one thing I do like in our report is that we were pretty adamant he was going to stick on the left side of the infield somewhere and would be good on the left side of the infield. Yeah, that's it's still that's still a big conversation to this day. Like where where do the Orioles put Gunnar Henderson? They put him at short, they put him at third. And to this day, I don't really care. Uh, he's going to be great at either position. He's got the arm strength for both. The accuracy improved tremendously last year. I think that was the issue in 2021. It wasn't the arm strength. It was the accuracy. Uh, he improved that uh, in a major way last season in AAA and AA as he climbed up all the way to the major leagues. But, yeah, whether he moves at shortstop or third, I don't think it's an indictment on any of his abilities, his physical features, or any of that. I just think it's they've got a luxury here with Henderson that they can put him at third or short whichever makes this infield better. And if it's Mateo at short and Gunnar Henderson at third and Frazier at second, Mountcastle at first, if that's the opening day starting infield, I'm fine with it. If it's flipped elsewhere, I'm fine with it as well. Wherever you put Gunnar Henderson, he's going to excel defensively. 100% agree with that. And just the way he is motivated to constantly improve his game and just the way it's still mind-blowing to me how much he improved from 2021 to 2022. So any, I have a feeling he might come in 2023 even better and just try to take over shortstop and force the Orioles to trade Mateo and and uh, go from there. I, I, he's a man on a mission. I think he's going to be a superstar in this league, whether it's third base or shortstop. But he he is uh, he's another level. And, uh, the Orioles got lucky that he fell to them, and they developed him. They're a match made in – in heaven and uh hopefully he's an Orioles as long as possible but we'll see before we wrap up this uh segment any final thoughts as far as the list as a whole or maybe players that if you had to do it over again you would rank hmm. scrolling through here real quick yeah. i wish i had my own personal list i know we were talking about this I before know. the show to see like who just missed out i i wasn't saving those uh so i couldn't tell you uh, I think it's hard to come up on the spot here. I don't know. I feel like I, and this probably was just because I read John Mioli's, uh, and he was higher on him, and I was like convinced by what he wrote. But I think I had Kyle Bradish a little bit higher in my personal rankings, maybe somewhere in 13 to 15 range. But it wasn't like I had some grand, uh, you know, insight into it. It was just, I read something that I was like, yeah, I think I could buy into that. I think we with this list, the thing stood out to me was that like the 30, the 20 to 30 range going back to that. It was like, for me, <clears throat> it was a few guys here that I was just kind of like hanging. I don't know. This the whole point of that we try to push out a lot. It's like scouting the stat line. And uh, you know, with Gray Finter, with Blaine Knight, I think that was too much. Just like looking at those low A numbers, looking at the high A numbers, saying seeing how good they performed, but like not at that time getting enough eyes on them myself and relying on that. And so that's it's kind of something that looking back now, like you know, Bob mentioned some things. You know, looking back at the list, things you learn. That's one thing that I, I've learned as well too. And why in the rankings we have now, it's. I'm more hesitant to put someone who I haven't seen higher up my list when beforehand I'd be like, well, I haven't seen them, but look at these numbers. And that's something that I'm a lot more cautious of now. It's, it's why I spend so much time watching these guys when, when we can, but 
yeah, that's that's something that I'm taking with me uh, moving forward. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I used to be like, well, this person was this age at this level and put up these numbers. Well, it's not as easy as that. And and I don't even know if I had ever watched MILB TV before 2021 when I watched a bunch of it and then even more last year. So, yeah, that's definitely one thing I think, at least for myself, I've improved upon. I want to see whether it's in person or at least on MILB TV, at least see see it in action to go along with everything else and maybe one day we'll also get those advanced metrics too and and have even more pieces of the puzzle to put together i think for me what i've realized in the last few years is to look at the walk rate with hitters a little bit more and i think that if i had considered that at the time i would have had zoe ortiz higher on my list than i did i was happy when i looked back and saw that ortiz was on my list but he was there at 29th and he probably should have been higher even at that time because he didn't strike out a lot. He walked a lot, and he was a great defender. And um, I really, really wish that Ramon Rios had gotten into the system a little sooner and then we had more on him at the time. That That's a guy that I look back now, and it's like, man, if he, we had had him where Ryland Bannon and Caden, or Caden Revere on this list, that would have been great. But we knew nothing about Arias. He came into the organization a few weeks before we published this list, and we had already been working on it. Um, but now it's like when I look back, I think more so at the or pre-2021 and mid-2020 list for Rias to be on there. But I'm like, man, you know, if I had a time machine and can go back and do something, Ramona Rias would be on this list. Yeah. Not that there aren't other things I would worry about the time machine, but if I had to address this <laughs> with that, that would be it. I probably even still would have struggled to put Arias really high up here just because – writing so much about his brother Luis Arias when he was with the Padres organization and a lot of people myself included thinking like he's a future like NL batting champion uh and like there's no way Ramon Arias is like as good as his brother like he doesn't have that prospect pedigree and it is fascinating to see that now like he's a gold glove winner and Luis Arias is he's still in Milwaukee like I don't even know like how much run he's getting in Milwaukee like he struggled he struggled with the Padres they made a good move by you know kind of moving on from him but turns out little brother was actually the the the, the better baseball player here I mean Luis I still like you Luis Urias he's he's put up pretty decent numbers with the Brewers but definitely he was definitely a guy I as well was high on when he was with the Padres and would have liked the Orioles to Acquire him. I think he batted two around 250 in 2021 with 23 home runs and 240 last year with 16 home runs. Okay. So not great, but I guess they're not not so uh, dissimilar after all. Maybe they're they're pretty similar, indeed. Well, that does it for tonight. So um, be sure to check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com for all the latest coverage on the Orioles, Ravens, Terps, and more. And while you're there, hop on the message board and join in the discussion with fellow readers of the site, as well as contributors to the site. Be sure to join our Patreon community to hear our rolling update of our top 50 prospects list. We'll be doing that over the coming weeks, and then we'll publish the full list online around the time pitchers and catchers report in mid-February. And be sure to follow us on social media, including on Twitter, at BSL on the Verge. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden. You've been listening to On the Verge. Oh, and we will be back next Monday or normal time of 8 p.m. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. That'll do it for this week's episode of On The Verge. Be sure to check out our Patreon page where you can help show your support for the show and get bonus content, including monthly top 50 updates to our prospect list and daily game recaps during the season and much, much more.